from Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs, it's Ideas Elevated, the podcast for entrepreneurs that inspires and elevates innovative products to their full potential. I'm your host, Danielle Kahn, and today we're sharing the story of Alex Benayan, a 26-year-old who spent seven years interviewing some of the most successful people in the world, including Lady Gaga, Larry King, and Bill Gates. Alex wrote a book about what he learned called The Third Door, the wild quest to uncover how the world's most successful people launched their careers. In October, Alex visited Lift Labs in Philadelphia to talk about how he got on the calendars of these legends. And he shared tips for how every entrepreneur can get into the right room with the right people who can help elevate their idea. We join him now, live at Lift Labs. So to take you to the beginning of the journey, I have to take you back seven years. I was 18 years old, a freshman in college, and I was spending every day lying on my dorm room bed, staring up at the ceiling. And my whole life, you know, I checked the boxes. I studied for the SATs, went to pre-med summer camp. And by the time I got to college, I was the pre-med of pre-meds. But very quickly, I remember lying on this dorm room bed looking at this towering stack of biology books, feeling like they were Dementors sucking the life out of me. And at first I assumed I was just being lazy. But very quickly I began to wonder, maybe I'm not on my path. Maybe I'm on a path somebody placed me on and I'm just rolling down. So now not only do I not know what I want to do with my life, I have no idea how all these people who I looked up to, how they did it. You know, how did Bill Gates sell his first piece of software out of his dorm room when nobody knew his name? How did Spielberg become the youngest director in Hollywood history without a single hit under his belt? No, this is what they don't teach you in school. So I just assumed there had to be a book with the answers. So I'm going to the library and I'm just ripping through business books and biographies and self-help books, assuming there had to be a book that really focused on this one phase in someone's life. Not an age, but really a stage when... You're getting rejected. You can't get your foot in the door. How do you find a way to break through? But eventually I was left empty-handed. And that's when my naive 18-year-old thinking kicked in. I thought, well, if no one's written the book I'm dreaming of reading, why not write it myself? You know, I thought it'd be super simple. I would just call Bill Gates, interview him, interview everybody else. I'd be done in a few months. That, I assumed, would be the easy part. The hard part, I figured, was getting the money to fund the journey. I was buried in student loan debt. I was all out of bar mitzvah cash. So there had to be a way to make some quick money. So two nights before final exams, I'm in the library doing what everyone's doing in the library right before finals. I'm on Facebook. And I see someone offering free tickets to The Price is Right. And I'm going to USC, so it's not too far from the show's filming. I watched The Price is Right growing up, but I'd never seen a full episode of the show before. But my first thought was, what if I go on the show and win some money to fund this book? You know, not my brightest moment. Plus, I had a problem. You know, I'd never seen a full episode before. It's the show you watch when you're homesick in fourth grade, but I'd never seen it all the way to the end. So I told myself, you know, I had finals the next day. It's a dumb idea to not think about it. But I don't know if you guys have ever had one of these moments where an idea keeps clawing itself back into your mind. No matter how much you tell yourself to stop thinking about it, it just keeps clawing itself back. So to prove to myself it was a bad idea, And I remember sitting at this little round wooden table in the corner of the library. 
and I took out this big spiral notebook and wrote, you know, best and worst case scenarios to prove to myself it's a bad idea. And, you know, I remember very vividly, it was like, worst case scenarios, fail finals, get kicked out of pre-med, lose financial aid, mom stops talking to me, mom kills me. You know, there's 20 cons. And the only pro was maybe win enough money to fund this dream. It was almost as if somebody had tied a rope around my gut and was slowly pulling in a direction. So that night, I decided to do the logical thing and pull an all-nighter to study. But I didn't study for finals. I said how to hack the prices, right? And I went on the show the next day and executed this ridiculous strategy and I ended up winning the whole showcase showdown, winning a sailboat, selling the sailboat, and that's how I funded the book. Thank you. And, you know, from that point, once I sold the sailboat, I had all this cash in my hand and... You know, I went back to college thinking I'm a millionaire all of a sudden. I'm taking all my friends to Chipotle. I'm like, freak, welcome only for everybody. You know, I'm a baller now because I have all this money. And, you know, it took three years to track down Lady Gaga. It took two years to track down Bill Gates. And one of the first lessons that has stood out to me was actually right in front of me on the day of the prices, right? I just wasn't aware of it. I had to go through this whole seven-year journey to finally understand it. And when I had started this journey, you know, there was no part of me that was looking for that, you know, one key to success. We've all seen those business books or those TED Talks, and normally I just roll my eyes. But what ended up happening is that as I had these interviews, as I had these conversations, if any of you are music fans, it was almost as if there was this common melody to every interview. And the analogy that came to me, because I was 21 at the time, is that it's sort of like getting into a nightclub. There's always three ways in. There's the first door, the main entrance, where the line curves around the block, where 99% of people wait in line hoping to get in. And then there's the second door, the VIP entrance, where the billionaires and celebrities go through. And school and society have this way of making us feel like those are the only two ways in, right? There's the first door where you wait in line, or the second door where you're born into, and that's it. But what I've learned is that there's always, always the third door. And it's the entrance where you jump out of line, run down the alley, bang on the door 100 times, crack open the window, go through the kitchen. There's always a way in. And it doesn't matter if that's how Gates sold his first piece of software, how Lady Gaga got her first record deal. They all took the third door. So that was one of the biggest realizations throughout the whole journey. And, you know, that's, of course, the title of the book and the thesis and really the energy I'm trying to inject into the next generation. Now, the second lesson I wanted to share with you guys has a lot to do with entrepreneurship. And when I had started this journey, I assumed, you know, the keys to entrepreneurship is whoever, you know, gets the best access to data, who has the best metrics. And what I realized as I was studying all these people, it doesn't matter if it's Warren Buffett in finance or Jeff Bezos, it doesn't matter what industry, people who start the greatest businesses, their success is never reliant on these little tools and hacks that we read about or hear about on these podcasts, what actually makes the difference every single time, what's the 90% differentiator, is their mindset. And the biggest thing about their mindset was actually one of the most surprising things for me. You know, I had assumed, I assumed that all of these people were naturally fearless. They had to have been fearless to start these businesses, or else how would they have been able to do it? And you have to sort of understand about me. I am like the scaredest kid you'll ever meet. Like when I was 12, I still had a nightlight on. My friends hated to go to, you know, theme parks with me because I hated going on roller coasters. 
So when I was starting this book, I was consumed by fear. So I always had this question of how these people were so fearless. But what ended up happening through my research and through these interviews is I realized the opposite was true. Not only were they not fearless, these people were actually tremendously scared the whole way through. So it wasn't fearlessness that they achieved, it was courage. And while they sound similar, the difference is critical. Fearlessness is jumping off of a cliff and not thinking about it. You know, that's idiotic. Courage, on the other hand, is acknowledging your fear, deciding and analyzing the consequences, and then choosing you care so much about it, you're still gonna take one step forward anyway. Now, the final note I wanna share with you before Danielle comes back up is this very like esoteric topic that still, to me, is hard to put into words. But it's this common thread that I've realized in everyone's story. Again, it doesn't matter if it's Maya Angelou for poetry or you know, Pitbull for music. Like They all had this similar moment in their careers that changed the courses of their lives forever. And as I was writing the book, I realized there was actually a moment similar in the beginning for me, but again, I hadn't realized it. And it happened with The Price is Right. But it wasn't what happened on the day of The Price is Right. It's what happened the night before. The reason this whole journey happened, the reason this book exists is really because of what happened when I was sitting in the library making that pro and cons list. What I've learned is that every single person at some point in their life has a point where you're looking at 20 good reasons not to do something, 20 logical reasons not to quit your job, 20 logical reasons why to not start that business. Yet for some reason, when you close your eyes and you're about to go to sleep, there's a whisper telling you to still do it. And the moments that change your life, the moments that change the entire course of your destiny is when you have 20 good reasons not to do something, yet still something is telling you to step forward anyway. And if there's one thing I can share with you, it's to listen to that whisper. I remember first hearing you tell this story, and to me, while the book's amazing and all of your interviews, just your story in itself of deciding to do that and take that risk and then having the luck and the serendipity of actually it actually working <laughs> in your favor. Because um, I'm sure some people are sitting here right now thinking, let's just say that I come from a place that where my maybe my parents don't have a lot of money or... Um, you know, I don't have a leg up. Which is most people. Which is most people. What do you, like, what part of your journey in, forget the book, but getting to the point of the book, do you think was luck? So luck has been this really big question that I had to grapple with. It's almost impossible for you to go and study success for seven years and not have to confront the question of how much of this is just random luck. So I'm doing these interviews and there's this one person who I come across. I didn't even know who he was, so I didn't, I wasn't even that excited to the interviews. A mentor of mine was like, trust me, you have to do this. And I trusted him, and it turned out to be one of the best interviews of the whole journey, and it's with a man named Chilu. And Chilu grew up in a village outside of Shanghai, China, with no running water and no electricity. People were so poor that they walked around with deformities for malnutrition. You know, we complain about our education system here, where he grew up, for every 300 kids, there was one school teacher. Now, Chi was really smart and worked really hard, and by age 27, he was making the most money he's ever made in his life. 
$7 a month. Fast forward 20 years later, and he's a president at Microsoft. And it is one of the most unbelievable stories in all of tech. And the reason most people don't know about it is because I asked Chi, and he said, look, every hour I talk to reporters, an hour I'm not contributing back to the world. So he hates doing press. He's this unbelievable person. And I'm trying to decode how he, you know, this sounds like the luckiest story of all time. The guy won the lottery. And I'm asking him, and I figure out that luck is actually at the core of his journey. And the way it happened is that at, around, he's like 27, 28 years old. He's at Fudan University in Shanghai, you know, making $7 a month. And he had realized that with his circumstances, there was no way he would be able to break through and differentiating, achieve his dream of coming to America and studying and working in America. So he realized while he can't control his circumstances, in Chi's words, there's one thing that God treats fairly to everyone, which is the amount of time we have. So Chi said, you know, it doesn't matter if you're the president of the United States or you're a peasant, you get 24 hours every day, no exceptions. So he said, that's something I can control. So he went to the library and started researching different sleeping habits, you know, Leonardo da Vinci and Thomas Edison, and he ended up figuring out how to hack his sleep. And he went from eight hours a night to seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Didn't work, one, two, three, four. And at four, you know, he finally found a system that worked for him and his body. And during these extra hours, you have to understand, if you're going from eight hours to four hours of sleep for a whole year, that's adding two months of productivity onto the calendar. And in those extra two months worth of time, he's writing more research papers, studying extra, and it all paid off on a very fateful Sunday afternoon. He was in his room and somebody knocks on the door and it's one of his friends saying, hey, it's raining, can you come down to a lecture? And the only reason Chi was in his room that Sunday, normally every Sunday he's riding his bike to visit his parents in the village, but because it was raining, he couldn't go. So she's like, oh, of course, I don't have anything to do. He goes down and supports his friend. And there was a visiting professor from Carnegie Mellon University. And the visiting professor is giving this lecture on this computer science topic. And she asks some really smart questions. And at the end of the lecture, the professor goes, how do you know so much about this topic? Have you done any research on it? She hadn't just done some research. He had written three research papers on that exact topic. And that's the power of chi time. You know, he is the most prepared person in the room by a factor of 10. And you know, the professor asked to go see it and chi runs to his dorm room, goes, gets the papers, comes back, the professor's looking at it. And the professor goes, have you ever thought of coming to America to study? And she says, that's my biggest dream. The only problem is it's $80 to take the entrance exams. And I make $7 a month. It costs $6 to live, and I give that one extra dollar back to my parents. And on the spot, the professor waived the fee. She took the exams, and two months later, he got a full scholarship to Carnegie Mellon to get his PhD. Now, sounds like in some ways the luckiest story. If it wasn't raining that Sunday, he never would have met that professor. He didn't meet that professor, never would have come to America, never would have worked for Microsoft. So I asked Chi, you know, what role does luck play in your life? Because there's also nothing lucky about him sleeping four hours a night and writing those three papers. And she is really thoughtful. He sits back in his chair and he goes, luck plays an extraordinary role in success, but just not what people think. Luck is like a bus. 
If you're standing at the bus stop, it's going to come by every now and then. If you miss one opportunity, the next one will come. But if you're not prepared, if you don't have your fare, you'll never be able to get on. And that to me is the definition of luck. Um, so you've, you've had an amazing year. You also last year had a personal loss um, through this whole time. You know, your father passed away and family is really important to you. Uh, I know it's important to a lot of people here and everyone who's building that next is also dealing with work-life balance and priorities. And so what does family mean to you? And how did you see family playing a role in all of the subjects in your, in your book? You know, there's something about, you know, seeing your dad pass away in front of your eyes that changes you. You know, you grow up thinking, you know, family is everything. And it isn't until you lose someone so close to you that you realize what that actually means. My entire priorities have changed, you know, the past year. When I had started this journey with this book, you know, I would be, I'd be in the office until midnight, 2 a.m., be up at 6 a.m. But there's something about sitting so close to death. You know, with my dad, he had pancreatic cancer. So the thing about pancreatic cancer is that in many ways, it's a pretty concrete sentence of what's going to happen. Um, unlike other forms of cancer where there's a fighting chance with pancreatic, it's pretty clear cut. So when he got diagnosed, we pretty much knew he had about a year. The only benefit of that is you know you better take that year really seriously. And I don't know, I didn't know why at the time, but I would take him to the chemo clinic and I would just sit there. The first time I took him there, I like brought my laptop so because I, I was writing the book at the time. And I'd like try to write or try to get emails done. And then I like after 10 minutes, I put it away because it didn't feel right. And I would just sit there. And every week I would take my dad, I would just sit there for like, and this would be like four hours, five hours. And I knew I had to be there for some reason, but I didn't know why. And it's only now looking back and I realize that the biggest lessons I've learned about life, I learned in that chemo clinic. I've learned how to live by going through death. And, you know, we, there's something amazing about, you know, the startup energy and being here. But once you see how fragile life is and that the ones closest to you can leave at any minute, you sort of get things in perspective. And I hate to use the word like gift or silver lining with something like this. But one of the things I did learn from my dad's passing is that you know, all of this, it doesn't actually matter in the end. Because like in the final week of my dad's life, when he didn't have, you know, access to any of his possessions, when he could not even talk, he couldn't eat. All you have really are the people who you love and the people who are around you. And that's the most important thing. Questions. Who has questions? Yes. Fred. Hey, Alex. Good talking to you before. Fred from App Social. Quick question. So I loved how much you focused on kind of that trough of sorrow that a lot of startup founders go through where you've, you know, the idea is out there. Everybody's excited about it for you. And then you reach a period where it's just dead, right? You're sending cold emails. You're meeting people with no follow-up. Um, and I really liked, I think the moment that encapsulated that for me was when you went to the um, shareholders meeting for Berkshire Hathaway and you got up in front of the mic 
And then you said something like, you know, I heard that you have this method of, um, you know, writing 25 things down that you want to accomplish and then narrow that down to three things. And Warren Buffett's like, what are you talking about? I've never done that. And I thought that was a really like vulnerable moment because it, it was something that you thought you heard, you thought that it was truth. And in that moment, he gave you a completely different answer than you wanted. So going off of that, um, what advice would you give to startup founders when they're in that trough on focusing three things? And what are those three things for you right now, now that you're at that almost pinnacle moment of your success? And how's that changed? Yeah, it's weird. I'm actually more comfortable. Like most of, like you said, most of this journey has actually been in a dark place, in a place of rejection. So that's actually where I, in a weird way, is sort of like my comfort zone these days now. Where, you know, if any of you right now with your businesses, whether it's your own startups, whether you're at a corporation and you're just facing rejection after rejection after rejection, and you feel that dark cloud, I would share a couple things to help you get through it. Number one, you know, when I, you know, you brought up the Warren Buffett situation. When I was getting, for you know, those of you who don't know, I spent eight months trying to track down Warren Buffett. And you have to understand, like, I'm, I've dropped out of school at this point. It is my full-time job writing letters to this poor guy in Omaha where I'm writing letter after letter after letter. I'm calling his assistant week after week after week. And literally, they have to say no to me every single time. And after, like, three months of rejection, it hurts. By month six, it's, you know... Brutal by month eight, you feel like you're coughing up blood. And there's this great quote by Paulo Coelho where he says, you know, if you're in school and you get an F, it hurts. But when you're going after your life's dream and you get rejected, it's debilitating. So anyone who's going through that, I would share these two things that can help you get through that storm. The first thing was that you know, I love when I'm, I'm watching these like startup events and people are like, never give up. I'm like, dude, shut up. You know, like there's this, I wanted to give up a hundred times. And I think, you know, telling yourself that only like failures think about giving up is just like so unfair. So when I am close to giving up, when I was close to giving up, one thing saved me every single time. I would think back to why this even started in the first place. And for me, I just had this belief that if all these people come together, not for press, not to promote anything, but really just to share their best wisdom with the next generation, young people can do so much more. And it was that belief that kept me from completely giving up. Now, it, that belief didn't like make me jump out of bed and feel amazing, but it was that thread that kept me from completely throwing in the towel. And that's all you need to keep going. So that's the first thing. The second thing I would share that I think is grossly underrated in 2018 for some reason our startup culture is all about, you know, power through, never take a break. You know, sleep is for losers. Take a break. You know, I'm serious. Like, have some ice cream. You know, there's, you know, it's as if like taking a break and like, Taking a nap and turning off your phone is for losers. Uh, no. Completely burning out and having a mental breakdown, that's what you want to avoid. Taking an afternoon off because you've spent two weeks in the office and you are just completely demoralized, uh, taking six hours off and going on a bike ride might actually be the thing that saves your company. 
And there's no shame in taking a break. I love it. Good reminder. I'm going to skip the rapid fire, but I'm going to end with one, one question okay. that you, you only have one minute to answer. <laughs> okay. One tip out of go back to your, go back to your 18 year old self the night before you're about to go hack the prices, right? And when a boat turn that into money that allows you to set off on the journey. What's the one thing, one tip you wish you knew then that you know now that you would give to your 18-year-old self mm. that could somehow be helpful to the people here tonight? You know, it's so crazy. If, if you had asked my 18-year-old self what I would want, it probably would have been a secret hack or, you know, the Tim Ferriss cold email template, something that was tangible. But I just can't stress enough that over these seven years, the value of taking care of your mental state. And if there's one thing I could give my 18-year-old self, there's this word, it's a concept in Buddhism called matri. And what matri means, it means loving kindness with oneself. It means unconditional friendship with oneself. And I went through, you know, the rejections I went through, whether it's the Warren Buffett experience or my Mark Zuckerberg disaster, all of those were all learning lessons and I wouldn't strip that away. But there was tremendous moments of pain that weren't necessary that could have been fixed with a little bit more kindness to myself. Thanks everyone. And Alex, thank you so much thank you. for being Thank you, here. Danielle. We're so glad you've been a part of this has been Ideas Elevated from Comcast, NBC Universal, Lift Labs. Be sure to subscribe to this show and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. For more information and to follow us on social, head to ComcastNBCULift.com or check out the show notes. This episode was produced and edited in Philadelphia by Kevin Shabidlin of Q9 Creative and Rec Philly with original music by Lee Rosevere and theme music by The Last Generation on Film. From Lift Labs, I'm Danielle Kahn. Until next time.